It is our season finale today. It, the first season of Clauses and Controversies was fun, but the second season has been so much more from a selfish perspective. So I'm sad that we're ending, but I'm delighted that we are ending with our dear friend who has been the biggest supporter of this podcast, uh, Anna Gelpern. All through our two seasons, she has uh, not only regularly sent us supportive and encouraging messages to keep us going when we knew we had a listenership of two, my mom and Anna. Uh, but, um, you know, she, she has ideas for new episodes. She has insights about the mistakes that we made, although she never calls them mistakes. She just says, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Might you want to consider a different one? Uh, that shows how you have your head up your backside. Uh, criticism from Anna never comes across as criticism. Uh, so today we're going to start by talking about sovereign veil piercing, uh, which is a rather obscure issue in the literature on sovereign debt, yet incredibly central if you think about the basic legal questions having to do with state lending and state lending and borrowing in terms of state-owned enterprises. There's been a lot of talk about Chinese state-owned enterprises lending to countries around the globe. And much of that is done through state-owned enterprises. And uh, people just assume away the veil-piercing question. So we're going to talk about that. We're probably going to be asking more questions of Mark uh, than anyone else, because he's written the seminal pieces on sovereign veil-piercing. But the goal is to have this as a conversation. And I I'm gonna ask Anna to start out with the first question, but before we do that, I want to thank the person who has, was instrumental in us even starting this podcast, and that's Liana. Liana was the one we went to right at the start. Uh, Mark and I don't know anything about how to do a podcast, and we said, you know, this Zoom teaching sucks. We're trying to create some kind of asynchronous content for our students, but we don't know how to do it. And we've looked online at this podcasting thing and it looks really complicated. Uh, so what shall we do? And her response was, I'll do it. I'll figure it out and I'll do it. And we thought we were gonna do maybe five episodes and then end it. And instead, she, she has been relentless in enabling our podcast to work. And, uh, you know, we have a little, a few more than five episodes now. So, Liana, I, I'm, we're both so incredibly uh, grateful to you. Here, here, here. No question. Thank you so much, Liana. And from, like, your giant, enormous... Well, on behalf of your giant, enormous fan base, this is just so amazing. Um, thank you, Liana. 
the fans around the world, thank you. Um, and we await the next episode with bated breath. <laughs> Anna, so you have the floor. Um, so first of all, this is like hosting the Oscars or something. Like, you know, you were invited at the last minute to join all of the celebrities on stage. This is very, very cool. And um, I have indeed been a huge fan of this podcast. You guys have just done wonders with the genre. And I am especially thrilled to be, I'm not sure, guest hosting, um, co-guest something hosting with um, me to this time asking Mark questions about his fabulous article, Piercing the Sovereign Veil. Um, I'm wondering about why the sovereign is in parentheses, but um, Mark, you're such a fantastic like, thinker and lawyer and um, the kind of systematic and rigorous way in which you uh, pull together organizational law and public international law doctrines is just something that I have um, in contract law and uh, international law doctrines is just always been um, to behold. So this is um, a really fantastic, fantastic contribution. Me too alluded to the fact that this is becoming even more topical than uh, it has been and in a very practical way because around the world we see the state more and more visibly involved in commercial activity. Um, so uh, in uh, state-owned entities lend, state-owned entities borrow, and uh, we are all struggling with this question of when is it that we should look at these entities and at these activities uh, as projections of state power? And when should we look at them as uh, just commercial activity, uh, any old profit-driven um, nothing to see here, uh, markets at work. Could you tell us a little bit, maybe just to introduce the piece, how you approach this line that we all try to navigate? At what point does it make sense to look at the state as a state? At what point um, is it uh, a market actor? And what does organizational law have to do with it, right? So in some ways, the first question is kind of the age-old sovereign immunity question. But then you just do this fascinating move bringing in um, corporate law. Uh, tell us why, how, and what does it add? Thanks, we do. And thank, thank you, Anna. I mean, as usual, you kind of, you kind of put your finger on the core question and also the question that I I feel like there isn't an especially good answer to. I mean, this is, I don't know about you guys, um, but sometimes I write papers just as an excuse to kind of figure out whether there's a, a there there, you know, whether an idea is productive. And so this one I wrote just because it occurred to me that in thinking about who is responsible for the state's conduct, 
or who's responsible, whether the state is responsible for an entity's conduct. That question appears in all kinds of guises. You know, it's um, the question of attribution under international law asks a, a version of that question. But in the US, it, it's mostly a question that's approached through the typical rules of organizational law, you know, starting with the the assumption we have a limited liability entity. And so then we have to figure out when that entity, which at least initially is a separate legal actor, right? It's in itself. It's it's entitled to be treated as a separate legal person when we're going to treat it differently. And courts have just borrowed from organizational law to, to make that decision. And the idea that began the paper simply was the realization that all of the things that organizational law presumes that the law does, you know, it helps shareholders, um, you know, partition assets in an entity, it helps, um, uh, you know, set up efficient capital structures and things like that. The law of sovereign immunity already does that. You know, the, in the U.S., the law of sovereign immunity sort of creates a mini firm that looks a lot like a modern, uh, you know, a modern firm with many, many um, uh, affiliated entities that are all legally separate and separate little piles of assets. Then creditors can only get at their own little pile unless organizational law says otherwise. And it just seemed weird to me that we were using this whole body of law that evolved to do work that was already done by sovereign immunity. And I was trying to, to explore whether we should think about these kinds of questions differently um, when the work has already been done. I, I don't know if that makes a ton of sense, um, but the, the reason I was in, yeah, I mean, the reason I was interested is 20 years ago, maybe it didn't matter so much, but there's a very, there's a very robust, effective plaintiff's bar now. There's a ton of capital that can go into backing litigation against um, against states and state-owned entities. And of course, states do things through these entities. And especially in COVID, when we're thinking about a um, maybe a pretty widespread wave of sovereign defaults, then the question of whether creditors can go after state-owned entities really comes to the forefront. So Mark, um... Let me follow up a little bit and I'll, I'll start with what I thought the questions would be in this area. And, you know, your writing has taught me that I was not necessarily asking the right questions. So I think we all began thinking about these questions around the same time, uh, particularly uh, in the context of Venezuela and Pedavesa, where veil piercing came up explicitly, even though they they use uh, the litigants use different words, but that's essentially I think what they were talking about. And I had thought, reading some of the old cases, that really the big issue was that courts dealing with uh, state-owned enterprises do a bad job of borrowing the insights from corporate law, where veil piercing is a big issue and lots of famous people uh, have written about it and uh, come up with 
sort of, of fairly logical, coherent ways in which courts should be analyzing this question. Now, it's a separate matter that that courts have not been analyzing this question. I, I think sort of, uh, I think Frank Easterbrook talks about how when uh, you will see veil piercing is just like lightning striking and, you know, just completely unpredictable and definitely unprincipled. And I thought that that was the insight to bring to bear, which is that, look, this, this is just about trying to figure out those instances where you are not entitled to the protections of the legal fiction because you have engaged in uh, fraud or some other kind of uh, skullduggery or uh, something like that. But my sense is that that is not at all what you are saying, that, that the crucial questions are, that instead we need to think about sovereign veil piercing differently because this is really a matter of sovereign immunity. And then once you put on, uh, put us in the box of sovereign immunity, then it's no longer about uh, creditors' rights and what creditors expected. It is also about what the host state has an interest in because sovereign immunity is primarily uh, a political uh, matter rather than an asset partitioning matter. So Anna and Mark, I know we wanted to have a conversation about this. You guys have thought about this much more than I have. So I'm wondering whether I'm getting it right. And having taught corporate law before, albeit badly, um, I'm biased by the fact that we spend so much time in that, that field talking about veil piercing. Yeah, so I'll I'll try to keep it brief because I want to I want to hear what Anna says. But I think so you sum you've summarized it perfectly, me too, that the you know, the impetus underlying all of the changes to the law of sovereign immunity that we've seen over the last 70 years stem from the recognition that states, often through state-owned entities, were engaged in commerce and should lose their immunity to the extent they were doing that. And then how that fundamental insight maps onto these questions of liability is the important is the important issue. I mean, it's as an initial matter, states get to define for themselves which entities are legally separate, but that's there has to be some limit on that. Uh, Venezuela can say that PDVSA is a separate legal entity, but that doesn't, the fact that Venezuela has said that doesn't answer the United States' concerns underlying the, the law of foreign sovereign immunity about when Venezuela defined broadly is engaged in commerce. And, um, you know, there's no reason why we should think of the law that evolved in the corporate context to, to be the right way of making those distinctions either. And as just one example, I think most people familiar with the literature on, on veil piercing in the corporate setting would say that, look, really you need some kind of fraud. You, occasionally you get these statements that suggest that extensive control is enough, but really the, the, the cases don't mean that. You need some kind of um, fraud on a creditor. And I think um, 
In the sovereign context, there's probably a very good argument for why control alone ought to be enough. When the state controls the entity to a certain point, it is kind of metaphorically speaking, the state that's engaged in the commerce. And from the perspective of the policies underlying sovereign immunity law, then the state ought to lose its immunity in that, in that setting, especially when, um, as I try to explain a bit in the paper, the, the consequences of, of imputing the liability to the state are actually not as dramatic as you might think. So Mark, um, you have just opened such a rich, rich treasure box of questions. And um, I hope you and me too will forgive me for uh, something of a free association here that Nietzsche's question uh, raised in my mind. Um, this idea of legal fiction, as you know, I'm just incredibly enamored of it for a number of reasons. Maybe I'm a wannabe literature major, but um, legal fictions work extremely well um, in the private commercial market world because um, we can uh, kind of treat the entire thing as if it's sort of like the Truman Show or something or Matrix, um, where uh, you know we can. The world is so constructed that we can kind of pretend everything works according to the rules that we've um, constructed. But the trouble with legal fictions and sovereigns is that like the author never leaves the picture. So. You know, you've got the writer like writing and rewriting the fiction, and even if they don't do it, um, they have um, the ability at any time. I mean, in some ways, that's what a sovereign is, right? <laughs> to rewrite their own legal fiction, um, and that strikes me as a, a huge distinction between uh, using. Or a sort of huge warning sign, I guess, is flashing for me um, for transposing these corporate law concepts into the sovereign world. Now, um, this idea of kind of the author messing with the legal fiction um, uh, as they go along is mitigated somewhat uh, in the transnational context, right, where you have to coordinate multiple sovereigns and multiple sovereign objectives, but there's still a co-author. <laughs> so um, the uh, kind of sovereign's ability to change the rules of the game as they go along um, strikes me as a huge impediment to adapting corporate law doctrines and theories to this space, which then makes me wonder, this goes back to the initial question um, that you had posed, you know, don't we have the law of sovereign immunity and isn't activities kind of the only tractable frame through which we could manage this very dynamic and political space. Now, parenthetically, entities and activities is an enormous debate in the financial regulatory space. So that raises a whole other universe of questions. But let's stick to the um, this the, the setting we're describing. I mean, the sovereigns 
can change the rules, both as lenders and as borrowers at any time. How on earth do we deal with veil piercing in this context? Mark, can, can I just add one Please. small addendum to the point that Anna made? And Anna, feel free to correct me. So that this is matter that has confused me always with uh, sovereign veil piercing, and which is, it seems like the definition, the legal definition of, you know, whether or not the entity is the state or not the state comes from domestic law because the corporation in question is almost always created under domestic laws. I'm meaning domestic law of the, the country. So uh, China's Exim Bank is created under Chinese law. Uh, Venezuela's PDVSA is created under Venezuelan law. And that means that at least at a formalistic sense that it's a matter of that country to decide whether it wants veil piercing or not. Um, but that seems, that also seems wrong if you take the creditor perspective. And then if you take the sovereign immunity perspective, it's, it's the prerogative of the host state. And um, th this just all seems uh, very confusing, but maybe you'll clear it up uh, before we go into the break. Well, I, I think it's confusing as well. Although, um, so for some clarity, the you're absolutely right that the the foreign sovereign gets to decide as an initial matter whether it's the one acting abroad, say within the United States, or whether um, the actions should be attributed to some separate legal entity, you know, a state-owned company, and it gets to to make that decision. But the question of of whether we're going to respect that decision, that's determined as a matter of U.S. law. And the question is, should it be determined, you know, as if this was just an ordinary private corporation and we apply veil-piercing types of, of principles extracted from corporate law, or do we think about it somewhat differently? I have to just acknowledge there's every reason to think the drafters of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act thought the answer to that question was just apply corporate law the way you would to any corporation. I mean, there's there's reasonably clear stuff in the legislative history about that. There's even some stuff in the statutory text. So one, one kind of simple answer is, well, you apply corporate law because that's sort of consistent with the statutory framework. And maybe a more functional answer is apply corporate law because we kind of know how to do that. We might do a crappy job of it, but we know how to do it. And, you know, why think, um, why, why, sort of start from scratch uh, with with something with something completely new. My own intuition really is that rather than sort of discarding the understanding of corporate law in general, what we ought to do is recognize that it's entities that need protection much more so than states, that really the, the work that um, principles of organizational law do in this setting and arguably in the in the traditional setting as well, is they protect entities from creditors of the state. And we need organizational law to do that work. Sovereign immunity doesn't do it as well. Whereas sovereign immunity does 
protect states and it protects it in a way that overlaps significantly with the protection that corporate law would already supply. So my, my sort of general takeaway is I don't really care that much for the most part, whether we pierce the veil in the traditional sense, that is to say, impute uh, an entity's liabilities to the state, because the consequences of that aren't that dire. But I do care a lot about whether we um, do it in the reverse direction. And I think entities that foreign states have set up do need significant amounts of protection. And probably we have to look to organizational law just because we don't have anything that's more established, for lack of a better word. We should probably um, go to the break so we keep our train uh, on time. Uh, but then after the break, uh, let's uh, start with Anna, if you don't mind, um, with your next question. But, but we also get to switch topics to some extent, do we not? We were, we were going to, we should encourage Anna to the extent we can to maybe point out gaps in what we've done so far um, on clauses and controversies. Maybe she even has some ideas for future episodes because we think there should be a season three, don't we? Wonderful. I like Season that. three. Right. Season three. Season three. All right. Let's go to a break. So, Mark, I think you're hitting on something really important, which is that the traditional corporate paradigm protects the owners, right? And it, um, so the asset pool is partitioned, the creditors of the organization only have access to that asset pool and the owner is insulated. In the sovereign world, the owner is already insulated, but we're worried about um, the owner's liabilities and creditors of the owner getting at the um, entity, right, at the state-owned enterprise. Um, but I want to go back to this question of sovereignty and control and the line between domestic law of the sovereign borrower um, and of the owner, I guess, and uh, the foreign law of the jurisdiction where the state on enterprise borrows. So this brings me back to uh, an old example at the late 20th century, um, centuries ago. The, you may recall Russia had a bit of a financial crisis and it had both domestic debt and foreign debt. Um, and it so happens that the former Soviet Union when it borrowed abroad, it borrowed through this entity, um, the External Trade Bank. Um, it, it's sort of been revived and is um, another interesting uh, uh, actor in the international financial scene. But at the time, that was the borrower against which creditors of the Soviet Union had a claim. Now, Soviet Union, right? Who cares whether it's uh, the government or a state-owned enterprise? After all, it's all sort of Soviet totalitarian, um, evil empire, you know, mess behind the Iron Curtain sort of thing. But it turned out to matter quite a bit because when time came to restructure, the government basically made 
the BTB, the External Trade Bank, an empty shell. And um, then, uh, you know, the creditors were faced with a choice. You either have your claim against the empty shell or uh, you, um, you know, take half price from the sovereign. Um, that's the kind of thing that the sovereign can do to manipulate the corporate form. And I guess with all the sympathies for the entity, I'm not sure that we have a clean solution for that problem. Well, I think that that's right. And, th and this is a good example, although in some ways it doesn't point us in the direction of um, thinking about the extent of control that the the Russian government wielded. I mean, there's always, the, this sounds like a sort of classic case of, you know, shareholder stripping assets. And, you know, in that sense, you've kind of inverted the expected priority structure where the entity's creditors come first. And and I think the the reality is on, on a set of facts like that, then creditors can, the, the entity's creditors could, if they wanted, sue the Russian government and would be relatively successful in doing that. And the fact that most or all of them chose to suck it up and take the deal maybe says more about the potency of US and other courts than it does about whether they would have had uh, through veil, pier veil piercing or otherwise a claim against the Russian state itself. The thing that I'm especially, I think is even more interesting is to ask what would have happened if the Russian government hadn't have stripped the assets of the entity away and just to ask whether the creditors could go after the Russian state in general. Like if, for example, they found, they probably couldn't find anything, but they found some asset belonging to the state that did not belong to the borrower itself and that asset was not immune, could they go after the asset? And my, my general response to that question is that probably the answer ought to be yes, um, you know, subject to the laws of sovereign immunity and that we shouldn't, we don't really need a veil piercing, veil piercing law to further mediate whether creditors ought to get that asset in a, in a sensible world, which is, I'm not describing the law as it exists, I'm describing something that seems a bit more sensible to me. Creditors could go after the Russian state subject to the law of foreign sovereign immunity, even if it hadn't stripped those assets away, uh, assuming the level of control uh, is viewed as, as, uh, as enough to, to um, allow them to do that. And, and while the law probably would say, no, you know, you got to have your hands on the till, like on a, on a regular basis, you got to be involved in day-to-day -day operations. I think that's foolish. I think... Um, more systemic kinds of control ought to count. Agree, and and mind you, I, this was long ago, and so I may have screwed up the name of the entity. Maybe it was VEB, not VTB, and maybe they didn't strip the assets. Maybe as part of the end of the Soviet Union, there were no assets left, right? But the broad point that I think I I take from the argument and from uh, your answer, Mark, is that. Um, you know, we can't, there's a risk, right, of runaway metaphor here. There's a risk of kind of taking the corporate entity veil piercing um, paradigm too seriously without questioning at every 
turn in the sovereign context where whether the analogy works. Um, and uh, I think it doesn't a lot of the time. I mean, at least that's what I hadn't thought about it in those terms, Mark, before reading your article. But the more I and kind of as I read it and reread it, I keep thinking, well, you know what? It's I think we should use it much more judiciously and we should adapt it much more in a much more targeted way. And that makes me think, well, maybe there are other areas um, in sovereign deadline particular and in sovereign commercial activity where we need to question these private law metaphors, right? And it's one of the things that I've asked my um, class to think about and reading your guys' writing, um, both uh, the work you've done together and, uh, and your individual work, um, how much of sovereign debt law, whatever that might be, is public law and private law? And kind of how do public law and private law interact in this space? And it strikes me as a pretty existential kind of perennial um, here. Uh, I don't think there's a clear answer, but you've certainly shown the limits of the um, bail piercing metaphor and the need for adaptation. So I think that's a good note on which we move beyond uh, the sovereign bail piercing uh, discussion, because as this is our season ending episode, we wanted to use the opportunity to talk about topics that we have not discussed, topics that we need to discuss more, and Anna's views on what's gonna happen in the sovereign markets generally as a function of the evolution of the pandemic. So Mark, I'm gonna give the floor over to you to uh, pose our questions to Anna. You can share the floor with me to uh, to a, a certain extent, but I I um I want to pick up Anna with something. So we we are recording this and will will um, post it. I think after we post a podcast we recorded with you and Christoph Trebesh earlier, talking about your your wonderful study of the terms of Chinese loan contracts, loan contracts, uh, particularly for state-owned Chinese entities. And um, I wanted to ask you, just as, as a way of leading in maybe to a broader discussion of what we should be thinking about going forward, but I wanted to ask you to kind of reflect a little bit on what it means to have now such a prominent role played in sovereign lending markets on the creditor side by a government with such a fundamentally different conception of the role between the state and the economy. And, and you know, in a sense, like we could ask, should we just pierce the veil between all Chinese state-owned entities and the states? And I feel like the answer to that question has to be no. And yet I feel like the um, legal regime that we have cobbled together to deal with sovereign debt problems sort of depends on some commonalities between the way that the participating governments manage their economies. And, and there were always stress points 
in, in that framework, but the, maybe they're just completely fractured now. Like what is, what does the advent of China as in some ways the world's largest bilateral creditor, at least to emerging markets, like how does that change kind of everything? So yeah, the tables are like twisting and turning and breaking. Sorry. Speed. No, that's that's totally cool. And I think that it connects to your paper mark that I actually think that the two topics are intimately related. Um, and I do think that one of the big shifts in this space has been the variety of actors and the variety of kind of market and market adjacent models of activity that we're seeing. So um, look, it's not, it, it's not just China. I feel like half of my vocabulary now is it's not just China, it's not just China. I mean, obviously China is enormously important and sui generis in some sense, but we're talking about US industrial policy. We're talking about um, much more muscular state intervention in commerce all over the world. And at the same time, we're talking about um, state actors being a lot more commercial um, than uh, kind of our previous uh, um, heuristic, I guess, of, you know, there's commercial and then there's political and near the two shall meet. I think then that kind of heuristic suggested. Um, it's never been a bright line division, but I think that these shorthands don't really work cleanly. And I think, look, it's to the good. I think that it's important to go back and revisit our assumptions of what corporate law does, how contracts work. I mean, what struck me, and this is my you know, man yelling at the television set, fangirl moment here, as I've been listening to your podcast um, this season is uh, kind of the way you've been talking about the common framework, um, you know, this concoction of bilateral official creditor coordination that, look, if you analyze the text, you're exactly right. Like you can drive a truck through every word. Um, no self-respecting, uh, you know, law firm would give an opinion about that sort of thing. But you're both really sophisticated public international law thinkers as well. And, you know, at some level, that thing, that blob, whatever it is, is, in my view, one of the more significant and intriguing kind of institutional um, innovation proposals in a space that's been dominated by, I mean, for God's sake, collective action clauses and vitamin C, right? It's like you have, you know, is it going to be mRNA or is it going to be more vitamin C or is it going to be a placebo? I don't know, but I think that it bears watching precisely because um, of the actors involved, right? These are actors that if you had conventional contracts and conventional corporate law applied to them, they would say, no, 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 and walk away. And, you know, that would just, and then we would all sputter about how unenforceable 
law is. So it's a it's a really interesting time. I you know the so the common framework has puzzled me and and as you're pointing out me too and I have been skeptics of it although kind of armchair skeptics I think um and I common I, framework sucks yeah I, armchair armchair skeptics to um who like to declaim loudly about our skepticism um but you know, so I recognize that it is a political document and that some of its ambiguities may have been the cost that had to be paid in order to get the Chinese government to, to sort of come into greater alignment with, um, with other official creditors. And that, you know, the proof is sort of in the pudding about what effect it has. But so what disciplines should we be looking to, to help us understand the way these kinds of sort of fumbling towards a better world reforms are likely to play out. I mean, contract law is one point of entry into thinking about these kinds of things, but it's a very limited one. So it was, should we've had, you know, economists, we've had some political scientists, we've had a bunch of lawyers. Um, if, we, just, if we were to think about this in terms of what ought we to be talking about over the next year, who should we be talking with? Sorry, that's an unfair question. I, we didn't give you any notice of that, but you- That's okay. <laughs> are such a keen critic of these things that I would be curious to, to hear what you think. So uh, I would, uh, look, the big mystery for me, I guess, I mean, and the disciplines point goes back to your podcast about, uh, you know, ESG and the, and the kind of the flaky virtue signaling, um, you know, green investment universe that we're also watching now um we're in this bizarro world where there seems to be an enormous amount of appetite for patently unenforceable stuff said publicly right so to me the biggest mystery of the common framework in some ways is why did um, you know the China's and Saudi Arabia's and India's of this world feel the need to sign up? Like, what do they get from essentially adapting Paris Club procedures? Why not have your own, you know, Belt and Road and you know Bells and Whistles Club? Um, so the fact that there seems to be an appetite for at least an appearance of cooperation is interesting. Now, the Black Rocks of this world and kind of their um, interest in uh, ESG is another puzzling one. I mean, surely it, it wasn't sort of one morning we woke up and suddenly, you know, and like an angel shows up on the doorstep and says, be virtuous and we turn virtuous, right? Um, is it that all of these actors are trying to snooker, um, I don't know, Greta Thunberg into um, relaxing and taking a nap? Or is there something more to it? Are we, as you said, kind of stumbling to some form of um, more meaningful cooperation through less binding formal instruments. I just don't know the answer, but you know, look, contrast. Look at our beloved collective action clauses. 
Um, as uh, you know, Christoph said in our other conversation, there are certain topics that have just sucked up all the attention in the scholarly and policy world. And then, you know, it turns out it's not the be all end all and there are other clauses in contracts and contracts where these kinds of things are irrelevant. And then it turns out that contracts are contracts and therefore they change and they vary and they adapt over time and it gets terribly confusing. So maybe, you know, having a softer framework publicly committed to um, is a, uh, you know, is a worthwhile experiment. So, you know, who would I have as guests? I mean, there, if you could get um, somebody from China Development Bank, right, um, which is the ostensibly commercial but fully state-owned lender, somebody from AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, that kind of straddles the um, territory between, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, so the Belt and Road perspective, and the but is very much structured like the uh, World Bank and other very established MDB is another puzzle, right? Why would you start a new bank that um, very consciously adapts an old form? Is it is the form useful? Is it just you know sort of smoke in your eyes? I don't. No, um, you know, ask the BlackRock people, what is it about the ESG? Um, you know, ask some, I would ask some hard questions there about enforcement the way you, um, I think, have uh, done so far. And maybe something interesting will come out. So, Anna, uh, just to take us uh, to the end, and we've used up so much of your time already, since we're at the end of the season and so much is unresolved in terms of the pandemic. Wondering what your sense is about what we're likely to see in the sovereign debt market. Now, I realize you not, probably not wanna make predictions about how many countries will fail and when they will fail but you are one of the keenest observers of gaps in the international financial architecture and how informal mechanisms sometimes help to fill those gaps as you were talking about the common framework and where we need more formal gap fillers. What's your sense? Will the markets continue to lend to the emerging markets? Uh, so that we don't really ever have a systemic crisis, at least not within the COVID-19 induced world? Or are you worried that the situation in countries like India and Brazil and South Africa is going to result in, you know, the, the kind of existential crisis that many of us worried about in early 2020? So, and this is something where I'm very much a fly on the wall. So I've you know, been working on this. Uh, oh, well, let, let me add, I, I have one more question that I wanted to ask you on this related, I promise, which is how do you see the new administration in Washington, DC, your hometown, 
as uh, changing the game, if at all. I mean, surely I, I say this in my prayers every night, even though I don't really pray, uh, that they're going to be different than the nitwits who were there before, but uh, I'm not quite sure how. You know, it's interesting. I've been wondering to what extent the debt space would be different, right? Um, because the last batch of folks was not super active in that space. I mean, apart from the sanctions where I don't see an enormous amount of difference. I mean, curiously, the position vis-a-vis -vis China is not you know, vastly different, I think. But I, I think the, here's, the, here's where I am um, kind of puzzling. I've uh, been a fly on the wall in some you know, conversations as part of this group of 30 report on sovereign debt, which um, and you guys can cut this out is coming out next week. Um, and really what I've been struggling with as a non-economist is in a world where there is some risk of rising interest rates, where governments have borrowed up a storm over the course of 2020, but also where we have seen some very interesting and important shifts to domestic law, local currency borrowing, um, kind of what kinds of crises are we going to see, right? So in the sovereign space, you know, of course you're gonna see crises. Um, that's just kind of uh, a given. Um, I don't think we're going to see what we saw in the early 80s um, when we were all, I don't know, singing unfashionable music and looking awkward. Um, but at the time, it's it was a, in retrospect, it looks like a very contained universe. You had commercial banks, which would have failed if Mexico alone defaulted and would have been in like massive negative capital territory if the top few debtors defaulted. And then you had a defined set of governments that borrowed from those banks. Now you've got this enormous range of creditors that compete with one another. Um, and they compete not just in the kind of lending arena, but in a lot of complex ways. I mean, Chad, which is the first common framework case, about half of its debt is owed to Glencore, um, the commodities firm. How do you bring that in? And this, and you know, its biggest official creditor, I believe, or second biggest is Libya. Um, not a G20 country. Uh, so I think what we're gonna see is an enormous amount of complexity. I think we're gonna see some really um, difficult decisions that governments would have to make when it comes to domestic debt. I mean, 60% of all new domestic debt issued by emerging markets in 2020 was bought up by their domestic banks. Now, um, what does that add up to? I don't know, it just strikes me as, um, an interesting kind of vulnerability point potentially, depending on how much debt in what country. So I don't think we're gonna see just a bunch of like straight up 
defaults on a bunch of asset managers. I think we're going to see a lot of jockeying for priority, a lot of jockeying for collateral. The I think a lot of folks will uh, be, you know, revealed as missing some clothes as the tide recedes. Um, and my worry is that what we're going to see is sort of a giant uh, kind of repeat or um, of something like what we saw in Puerto Rico, except there's no federal government, there's no, um, there are no clear lines of authority, just a lot of really diverse claims with very diverse borrowers. So if I'm an asset manager, I am dying for sovereign bankruptcy. I am going to the IMF, to the OECD, to mama and to papa and saying, please give me a sovereign bankruptcy court because all these other actors that I didn't even know existed are eating my lunch. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, 10% of the picture and Paris Club is 4% of the picture and, you know, help. Um, but alas, I don't think help is for, gosh, I was hoping to be optimistic. Um, no, 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 we like pessimism. Me too, especially. Me too. You, 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 you made me pessimistic. <laughs> Um, but I'm optimistic. Um, there's a bunny rabbit outside and, you know, foxes are having babies. Oh, no, foxes are going to eat the bunny rabbit. This is terrible. Um, in, the middle, in the middle of D.C., foxes yes. and bunny rabbits. That's, Absolutely. I guess um, there's a post-apocalyptic kind of thing about that. That is and not, a giant entirely, turkey. Yeah, turkey. not entirely optimistic. Um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, thank you. You know that we're going to pester you to come on again um, as things continue to unfold. But um, thank you so much for coming now. And and I, we shouldn't end without saying thank you again to Liana. The, I mean, the amount of technical expertise and administrative work and just sort of general kindness and wisdom has been so great and so indispensable to us. So um, one more thank you to Liana for everything that, that she's done. And um, the, I guess the, the got to give the people what they want. We'll probably have season three, right? Me too. Wonderful. So beautiful. Thank you so much. I feel like I won the lottery. Um, thank you, Liana. Thank you guys. I <laughs>